0: I'm looking forward to this book. This is a fun study to go through, and uh, yeah, we're going to be looking at some fun stuff as we continue on here in our Bible from 30,000 feet, Soaring Through Scripture, the great story of Jonah. There was a little girl who was on an airplane when a man beside her noticed her storybook that she was looking at, and it was entitled Jonah and the Whale, the man Looked at her and said, you don't really believe that story, do you? That whole idea of Jonah being swallowed by a whale? A little girl replied, well, yeah, of course I believe the story of Jonah is true. You mean you really believe that a man can be swallowed by a whale? Stay inside the belly of this whale for three days and three nights and then come out there alive. The man continued to question her. The child said, listen, the story's in the Bible and we studied it in Sunday school today got to be true well then the man asked how can you prove the story about jonah is true the man smiled proud of his superior superiority, and asked what will you do if jonah's not in heaven the little girl said well i'll ask him if he's in heaven of course and the guy said what if he's not in heaven she said then you can ask him so a lot of people a lot of people will like to criticize and question the whole you know uh validity of of a book like this and the things that we're going to be looking at and and detailing here. Uh, Lots of questions to get raised about the literalness of this book. Many people try to pass it off. It's just a a mythical story, that this is just one of those great, you know, kinds of stories made up over time, kind of folklore, that sort of thing. And people say this is just way too big of a fish story to really be believable. Some people even more in in recent times, have viewed the story of Jonah as just really an allegorical kind of message, really communicating more of a truth about Israel and their disobedience and failure to be a witness to the nations and how they were taken out of their land into captivity. So the book of Jonah really just sort of details and highlights that as a picture, an allegory of that. And so again, trying to disprove the validity and the truth of this. But for those that would like to pass off this book than anything more than factual and true, is gonna have a problem with what Jesus says. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 40 to 41. First Jonah, Jesus says, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So understand here, if Jesus uses a story to bring some kind of truth to the people he's speaking with, and how if they would repent, then there's going to be a greater condemnation on you who do not repent. If Jesus uses this as a truthful story that is speaking to them, and it's not true, then we have to reason that Jesus is a liar. That what Jesus is saying is not true, If this is being passed off as just a story, and allegory. This is placed in the Bible that means something more than what it really is saying to us here. Jesus uses this to say, here's something that happened, and I'm using this as a reference for you now because there's truth in this here. Otherwise, if you look at Jonah's just simply a whale of a tail, well then, Jesus and his credibility and truth is on the line here. Jesus compared his own death and his resurrection with what happened to Jonah. So if Jonah's a made-up story, then we have no precedence to believe the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is important stuff here. It's why I can confidently say that what we're going to be looking at here tonight in the book of Jonah is absolutely 100% true. It happened. You may question and go, how? As we often will when the Lord is at work. And that's okay. That's where faith kicks in. That's where we say, and God is the God of the impossible. Why do I have to question something like this? God is more than able. He's proven it before. He's shown it before. This is nothing. This is child's play to have a fish come and swallow up a man, spit him out three days later. This is nothing. So we don't need to question this, worry about it. Jesus vouches for it himself here. Look at the outline that we're going to be looking at here in the book of Jonah. I got a couple that kind of spell it out here for us. First of all, the disobedience to Jonah chapter 1 the deliverance of Jonah chapter two, the declaration of God's message by Jonah in chapter three, and then the displeasure of Jonah in chapter four. Or like I say here, you can say we've got in chapter one, Jonah in the storm, then Jonah in the sea, Jonah in the city, and then Jonah in his sin. And that's what we'll kind of be seeing as we move through this book here this evening. Look at chapter one, verse one. Let's just get right into it. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So here in these two, two first verses now, these first two verses, I should say, we're introduced to the two main you know, players in the story, Jonah and Nineveh, the Ninevites. Again, Like most of the minor prophets that we've been looking at here, we don't know a whole lot uh, about them, but we have a few things that give us some historical reference to to Jonah. In fact, we initially read about Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14. Look at what it says there, verse 23 and 25. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah... Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-hefer. So we find that he's from Gathefer, that Jesus has been, or the Lord has been using him to speak to the situation here with Jeroboam II, the king now. And what's interesting is Gathefer was in the Galilee region. I bring that up to say, it's funny that as we were going through the gospel of John, as we've been going through the gospel of John on Sunday, we saw a confrontation come up between the Pharisees and Jesus. And it was the Pharisees who said this in John seven fifty two. They said to Jesus, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Really? You religious leaders, you might want to check the record books, the historical books here, because it tells us in 2 Kings, the very book that you should be very familiar with, that Jonah was from the Galilee region. And so here we see that now in 2 Kings. They bring it up. They're forgetting what's actually been written here. Now we know from that account in 2 Kings that I read that That this is a time period now where Jeroboam II was the king. He's up in the northern kingdom, ruling over Israel, the northern kingdom, from about 793 to 753 BC. So Jonah's ministering around this time. It's a time where the the Ninevites are becoming, you know, very strong as a nation. And they start, you know, providing a bit of a threat now, of course. So we see that Jonah's called right there in verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh. Their sins have come up before me. Their wickedness come up before me. The Lord is aware of what's going on, and he needs a prophet to go and speak to them. All right? So here's a, a map here that lets us know kind of in relation to where, you know, you got Israel right down there in the middle um, by the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, present day in, in Iraq. And so this is where Jonah is called to go. Now, the Assyrians were just a bad, bad bunch of people, all right? These guys were ruthless people. They were cruel. They were wicked. They would cause whole cities, when they were invading oftentimes, whole cities to commit you know, mass suicide rather than fall prey to the hands of the Ninevites because nobody wanted to have to endure the, just the treacherous, torturous things that they would do. They were, Assyrians were known to, Skin people hang their hides on the walls of their cities. They would stack skulls on the roads to just to bring real fear into the people around them. I mean, it was brutal. And, and you can just imagine Jonah being told, Hey, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah goes, Wait a second. Hold on a second now. That's like being you know, told to go into the local bar when all the hell's angels are hanging out there and say, I need you to go and speak out against these hell's angels. Like, you'd be like, Lord, what, come again? You know, send Pete. He's a little bit bigger than me. He can handle that. I can't, right? Might be, a, yeah. I think that's the word for you, actually, Pete. Maybe just pray about that, so. So <clears throat> here's Jonah being told to go to this group of people. And, and I'm sure he wasn't just now, you know, scared of the Ninevites, of these Assyrians and what they might do, we're going to find out that Jonah was actually a little bit scared that they actually might repent. Think about that. Jonah's like, I don't want these guys to get saved. See, Jonah, we're going to see, has a bit of a prejudice against this group of people, all right? He's, He's a little bit bitter against them, And it's the root of bitterness that got Jonah into a lot of trouble. Hebrews 12, 15 says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. (coughs) See, Jonah understood very well, you know, what might happen if he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches the word of the Lord, that there might be some that repent. And Jonah's like, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know if I, I, I even want that to happen. What area in your life, or maybe people in your life, has become like an innovative to you? What or who are you secretly harboring an animosity towards because of a biased or a prejudiced outlook? One in which maybe a root of bitterness has begun to grow up against that person, or, or in that situation where you just kind of guarded your heart and not allowed the love and grace of God to come and shine through and begin to soften that situation that's going on because that root of bitterness becomes a very poisonous thing that will defile you and many others as well so Jonah's dealing with that and we'll see how that plays out here as we go through the story but the book of Jonah interestingly is written as a narrative there's not a lot of prophecy here which is interesting for a, a a prophetic book a minor a book in the minor prophet there's not a lot of uh, of you know word from the Lord being preached out in fact we're going to see just in chapter three verse four eight words eight words that Jonah preaches he'll say yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown I think he said that really excitedly 40 days that's it guys and then doom time that was it that's the only Really prophetic word that we hear in the whole book. Eight words. So this book, unlike the other prophetic books, deals more with the situation of Jonah himself than it does about a nation. This is about dealing with a hard heart of God's servant rather than the hard heart solely of a nation that is turned against God. This is very interesting. There's many great lessons to learn. We see the overwhelming grace of God that he is sovereign and he saves those whom he chooses to save. And in the sovereignty of God we see that he has a ship for Jonah, a storm comes, a fish eats him, a whole nation is transformed. God prepares a plant, he prepares a worm that devours the plant. He prepares a strong wind to come and beat against Jonah in the heat of it there. God, you see, is everywhere through this book and he's shown that he is the one in control of all things and moving all things along that God is sovereign and you just can't get away from god or the sovereignty of god god's mercy reached jonah in the depths of the sea and also reached the ninevites in the depths of its wickedness neither one of those deserving of god's grace but that's the sovereignty of god he he saves whom he saves now though this story is not allegorical it's completely literal it's true There are still some important pictures that we can see as we go through the book here, which really um, portrays neatly the past, present, and future situation in the nation of Israel. Look at the following here. Israel was intended to be a witness for God to the Gentiles. Jonah is intended to be a witness of God to the Gentile people there's jealousy that a message of grace should be extended to the Gentiles Jonah's not happy about that Israel oftentimes, not happy that wait a second how are other people getting saved coming I mean, you can't be a part of the family of God unless you're Jewish well Jonah's thrown into the sea kind of picture the Gentile world swallowed up by the nations yet not assimilated by them that's what's happened in Israel they've been swallowed up in and apart and, and, and you know dispersed throughout the nations and yet have kept their own identity. Jonah's going to be cast upon dry land as Israel is going to be restored to the land of Israel and made a blessing to the nation. So it's an interesting picture that we see here of the nation of Israel, though this is not just allegorical or just a picture. This is a true story which paints a picture for us here. Now, look at verse three here. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah should have been one that read Psalm 139, right? Verse 7 to 10, which says this, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. See, Tarshish is basically, in Jonah's mind, the Furthest known point in the world. It's like, I'm going to go as far away in the opposite direction of Nineveh than I can possibly go. Jonah's thinking, I want to get as far away from the call of God, from what God wants me to do, and maybe I can just sort of escape out of that. But Jonah, running away in his disobedience, sadly is not getting away from the presence of the Lord. So Tarshish is is believed to be in what's known as Spain today. And so for them in Israel, this is kind of like, this to them is like the farthest known point they can get to at this time. Nineveh, of course, over to the east, northeast of, of Israel. And so Jonah's going as far away as he can. And as Jonah tries to flee, notice what we kind of hear repeated there in that verse. It's the word down. He, um, Let's see here. He went down into the ship to go with the Natarshus. There's another, oh, he went down to Jopa. Look at his progression there. It's like he goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the pace of fare. He goes down into the ship. It's kind of the way that you're going to be experiencing life when you are on the run from the Lord. Nothing's going to be looking up for you. It's all going to be a downward projection. You keep going down as you ignore the Lord, try to get away from it. And it's costly. It says that he, he had to pay the fare. This is something that we often fail to see when we try to run from the Lord or ignore his leading, that it's costly. Not only did Jonah pay, but a whole boat of people almost paid with their lives for the actions of Jonah. Ravi Zachariah said, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will always have that effect. Now, it's interesting that Jonah is running from the Lord, but it seems that everything is lining up for him. Do you see that? He heads down to Joppa. Oh, hey, there's a ship just sitting here ready to go to Tarshish. How wonderful is that? He might be thinking, this is wonderful. The Lord is just providing for me to kind of do what I want to do. But understand something here. When we're walking in disobedience to the Lord, Satan will try and make it as easy as possible for us. Satan will always be right there bringing things in our way that make us think that this is the right way, the good way, this is the comfortable way. But that's not lasting at all. We have to be aware of his schemes. And we'll see here just how at peace Jonah was. Look at verse 4. We read there, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship, into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. So the crewmen are panicking right now. They're freaking out over what's going on. And yet what's Jonah doing? He's sleeping. He's, he's kind of in peace right now. He's like, oh, thank you that I'm not having to go to Nineveh and deal with those guys. He's at peace right now. And there might be times where you are feeling at peace. But we always have to go, is this in line with the word of God? You know, I talk to a lot of people that will at times be doing something so contrary to scripture and they'll be, you know, I just have a peace about this. I'm like, that's not a peace of God because if it's contrary to God's word, that's not a peace of God. That's a, a manufactured counterfeit piece, And it's not going to end well. And so God provides a storm. He provides a storm of correction here for Jonah. That's going to reroute him. Well, oh, it doesn't mean that every storm that we encounter in life is going to be a storm of correction. Sometimes there are storms of direction that God gives us. Like Paul, when he's sailing to Rome, and God provides a storm to get him to Malta because there's some ministry to do there. Paul was right in line of God's word or work the whole time, but a storm of direction. There's also... Storms of perfection that God will allow in our lives to grow us, as he often did with his disciples. Disciples, once more, doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do, but they encounter a storm. Why? So they might grow in their faith and be more perfected. Storms of direction, storms of perfection, but sometimes, yeah, the Lord will provide a storm of correction to redirect you to get you back on track with what he has because you're going the wrong way and he's not going to make things comfortable for you that's what's happening here with Jonah look at verse 7 and they said to one another come let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah then they said to him please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us what is your occupation and where do you come from what is your country and of what people are you so Jonah said to them I'm a Hebrew And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, that's some loaded, lengthy questioning going on. They're just bombarding Jonah. Who are you? Where'd you come from? What are your people? Oh, what's going on? Who's your God? They're just like laying it out there for him. And these guys, all being mariners, must have been in quite the storm here. You get the idea that this is perhaps a very supernatural storm because they've no doubt, you know, um, experienced storms on the sea. These are are well, you know, uh, experienced mariners, and yet they are freaking out. I mean, this is a storm like probably no other they've seen. They're questioning this man going, this, isn't, this is unusual, this is extraordinary. Who are you? And Jonas says simply, I'm a Hebrew that fears the Lord. Really? <laughs> you might have been able to say that at one point, but that's not so much what you're living right now. Because if he feared the Lord, he wouldn't be in this situation. If he feared the Lord, he would have been responding, arise, go to Nineveh, with, okay, Lord, here I am, send me. He, he's not walking in this fear of the Lord right now, and it's got him into a real mess. See, there are people who sincerely believe in the Lord and may even say they fear the Lord, but what is it that the Lord is most interested in? Obedience, following him. And that's what's gonna show our fear of the Lord. Our love for the Lord is we're going to see this Sunday in John when Jesus says, if you love me, then keep my commandments. It's obedience. Well, verse 10 says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. "You know, what, You know that you have messed up royally when it's the heathen, that are coming alongside you and asking, what have you done? And they're trying to bring some correction to him. You know you're in a bad spot when it's the heathens that are correcting you on these things. What have you done? Look at verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. It's a fitting picture here. God is moving, God is calling. But the men try to keep rowing and make it on their own. Isn't that the way that oftentimes people go? It's like, we can do this. We can make it. Just got to go harder. Try more. It's the actions of so many. They're rowing fiercely in life, trying to make it to a place of calm on their own. But whatever means they apply outside of the Lord will end in futility. Instead of fighting and straining, we need to surrender Ourselves to the Lord. It's when we surrender ourselves to the Lord that we'll begin to experience that peace of God. Notice what happens when Jonah surrenders, throw me over, and they do so, the storm stopped. It's when we surrender that we'll see the chaos begin to settle and the storm cease. Then the men feared the Lord in verse 16 exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So here's what really trips people up now. This is what sends everybody in the loop. Like, what? Some fish, some sea creature came and swallowed up this man for three days and three nights he's in there? Everything's fine? They wonder how this can be. It just seems so ludicrous, preposterous. It just couldn't be. It's where faith is tested. And, and people that choose not to walk by faith miss out and they get messed up. Now, it does seem pretty crazy, right? I mean, this is a serious fishy story here that Jonah's hanging out in the belly of a great fish. It's caused a lot of people to question the authenticity of the word. But let's look at just a, a couple possibilities here of what we might be looking at here as we kind of compare it to sort of modern science or, or discovery that we see here. Now, one of the suggestions is this is a white shark, all right? The scientific name, Rhinodon Typicus, it's up to 70 feet long. It's been shown and noted to have swallowed men who have lived through the ordeal. And then the phenoclon shark is another possibility. It has swallowed giant sea cows that can weigh a thousand pounds without breaking a single bone. Hmm. Some suggest it's a whale. And whales, of course, have been known to follow after ships for garbage that might get thrown out. And it says back in verse 5 that they were throwing out all the cargo from the ship. And so no doubt there'd be some food probably in that mix as well, where perhaps a whale was attracted to that, came alongside, and that could be a possibility. The mystic heat whale, or the sperm whale, could definitely fit this idea. Their teeth are not for chewing, but for securing prey. And they have swallowed creatures alive, like seals, Penguins alive, they swallow them whole. They don't chew them up. And they've been known to swallow unusually large objects, even like 15-foot sharks. So that's a possibility. But the Bible doesn't say that it's a whale. And that's what our minds all go to, right? Oh, it's got to, The whale is the only kind of creature that could possibly be big enough to even do something. And even then, it's like, what are the odds? And a lot of people question, what are the odds of, uh, of a man getting digested by a whale coming in through the, you know, all the tubes going down through the stomach chambers and the, the acid, the gastric acids that are there to break apart. How could a man even survive that? There's been a lot of debate and question, but the Bible doesn't say it's a whale. Verse 17 says the Lord had prepared a great fish. One of the Jewish rabbis taught, and I find this very interesting, one of the Jewish rabbis taught that the fish who swallowed Jonah was a special fish fish prepared by God for this specific purpose of grabbing Jonah, protecting Jonah, and transporting Jonah. See, the fish could have been specifically customized for Jonah as though it was a divine submarine. In other words... We don't need to try and find a suitable species that could possibly even do some of this and try to find some sort of stories. And, you know, we've all got stories. James Bartley, a man that was in the 1800s, swallowed by a whale, discovered skin bleached. And we've got stories like that that, again, people wonder the authenticity of that or no. And so we've got stories that go, but we don't have to try to find some story that could possibly give credibility to Jonah because we've got a God that's already shown himself credible. And God prepared this fish. It could be that this is a specific, one-off fish designed exactly for this purpose. A unique fish. A fish that's never been before. Made solely just for this purpose. Who knows? That could easily be. And that's nothing for God. Say, I'm going to prepare a fish. A special fish that... Maybe it doesn't have any gastric acids. It's not eating anything else. It's just there to hold Jonah for a few days until he gets his head screwed on straight and then we'll deal with it, right? So it could be that's it. Very interesting. Whatever happened, we know it was a miracle from the one that can be said, nothing is impossible with God. So look at chapter two. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. It would appear as we continue on that Jonah was literally in the fish's belly for three days, three nights before he prayed, right? We could be talking three days here until Jonah had just enough of, you know, the grossness, perhaps the stench of kind of fighting with God where he finally came to the point where he's like, okay, God, I can't take it any longer. (laughs) I repent, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm wrong, I get it now. Get me out of here, right? Three days maybe he's he's struggling through this, he's fighting through whatever the case, Jonah begins to seek the Lord. And as Jonah directs his attention to the Lord, he's filled with thanksgiving and praise. He's so glad that the Lord has delivered him from drowning. Here he is in the belly of a great fish, and he's saying, Praise God. We're seeing a real attitude shift now coming from this reckless and reluctant prophet. And at least eight or nine psalms are being kind of quoted or alluded to by Jonah as we see this prayer being offered up in chapter two, all right? Jonah's a man that knew these scriptures, and he he knew these scriptures would be a real help to him in this time. It's not, and, and understand this, it's not like Jonah is sitting in the belly of the whale, you know, and he's got a candle lit like Pinocchio sitting in the great whale. He's rolling out all of his scrolls now and going, all right, Lord, give me a scripture. It's going to help me here. He doesn't have any of that, but he's got the word in his heart, and he begins to pray according to God's word. He begins to find comfort in God's word. How important it is that we don't wait till we find ourselves in a crisis before we try to have the word of God as a bedrock for us. Be those that memorize God's word. I think that's a, a spiritual discipline that really gets kind of forgotten today. How important is to be those that memorize, are, are you intentional in memorizing scripture? Are you sitting down and say, Lord, I want to have my heart so full of your word that, man, when, when difficulty comes, when crisis comes, it's that that just is pouring out. I don't have to scramble and say, Lord, give me a word, but it's already there. And Jonah is revealing that to us here. Have God's word tucked away in your heart. And he said here in verse two, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. So here's Jonah's, he's reciting Psalm 18 or alluding to Psalm 18 and Psalm 86, Psalm 120 all referencing these things here. Jonah knew that even at his lowest point, and from the lowest point, he's, he's imagining this belly of the fish being like Sheol, which was, you know, the place of the dead, Hades here. And, and he's thinking, you know, God was not out of range. God, you're here. You hear me here. See, we're always connected. Isn't it great? In a world where we're oftentimes dropping connections and connections being so important, we know with God we're always connected. He's only a prayer away. He hears when we call out to him. Praise the Lord for that. I cried out to the Lord, and he heard me, or he answered me. And then in verse 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Psalm 42.7 says, Deep calls on a deep, but the noise of your waterfalls, all your waves and billows have gone over me. So here's Jonah again referring to the psalm in 42 see it wasn't the sailors that tossed Jonah overboard he's recognizing he's not saying i can't believe those sailors did it i was kind of you know not serious what i said throw me over he's not upset about it. no he's like god you're the one that tossed me over i recognize i needed that i was running from you this is god's doing and jonah recognized that and here again it's important that we recognize the law the lord's sovereignty in our lives because we can be quick to blame other people when we find things happening against our desire instead we need to look to the lord and ask why is this going on in my life what what god are you trying to teach me or or accomplish in me through this situation or circumstances i'm dealing with god we can be so quick to just blame others rather than saying lord what do you want to do in this then I said in verse 4, I've been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple, uh, referencing Psalm 31 and Psalm 5. And then verse 5, the water surrounded me, even to my soul, the deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Psalm 69.1 says, save me, O God, for the waters that come up to my neck. Jonah thought he was a goner, right? He's thinking, this is it. I'm, I'm done for. Weeds were wrapped around my head. He's got like seaweed now. It seems like the fish is taking in seaweed. And I'm just wrapping them up. And I don't think I've ever been out, you know, in the ocean. And you just get seaweed wrapped around you, right? Sometimes when you're out there swimming, all of a sudden seaweed comes up. And just starts to entangle you. You're just like, oh, this is gross. And all you can do is look up and say, help Kelp. Or sorry, you can say you could say something else, maybe, but that's what Jonah's doing right now. He's just yelling out help to the Lord because he's in a dire situation now. Jonah's downward journey from Jerusalem down to Jopa, down into the ship, down into the cargo hold, and ultimately down into the bottom of the sea, pictured as down to the very gates of the netherworld, does not end until he turns back to God, who brings him up from the brink of death now. He says at the end of verse six, yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah understands that deliverance, salvation is found only in the Lord. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Sadly, Jonah waited until his soul was faint within him. And it certainly doesn't need to be that way, right? Oh, that we would remember the Lord, not just in time of need, but in time of goodness and rejoicing and times of plenty. Because he deserves to be praised in all circumstances. And if we remained in remembrance of the Lord and and just offering up praise to him and our focus on him, there'd be a whole lot less times of having our soul fainting within us. He says in verse 8, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Again, here's just the sovereignty of the Lord now, just in control of all things. Now, let me share this psalm with you here, which I think just gives great comfort in light of what we're seeing here with Jonah. Psalm 30, verse 2 to 5 says, O Lord my God, I cried out to you. And you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That's certainly what Jonah is experiencing now. Look at chapter three. As we've seen here, We've gone through the, um, oh, I'm just trying to look at my, my outline here. The, the disobedience of Jonah, chapter 1, all right. Then we saw the deliverance of Jonah, chapter 2. Now the declaration of God's message by Jonah now as he begins to minister there in Nineveh. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Let's try this again, Jonah. All right, take 2. Let's do this again here. Go in Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Aren't you so glad that God is a God of second chances, right? That Jonah's not dismissed, taken out, shelved. God says, let's try this again, Jonah. Let's do this a second. Let's let's see how you do. I'm going to give you another opportunity. God's not just God of second chances, but in as I can attest in my case, got a third, fourth, hundred, thousand chances. God's a God of grace. Aren't you glad that when you mess up and you fail, God's not dismissing you or solving you. God says, hey, man, repent and come back and we can, we can do this again. I'm so glad that God's that God of grace. He receives us and continues to work in us and use us. See, that great fish that swallowed up Jonah wasn't punishment. That was preservation for Jonah. That was God's provision for Jonah to be preserved and not just to punish him, right? Think, okay, Jonah's got it, man. Ooh, it's a good thing that Jonah, you know, repented or else that, that, that he would have been a goner. But no, that was God's means to preserve Jonah and continue to work in him so that Jonah wouldn't be washed up for good. Such a good, good lesson for us here. So, God comes now, and he calls out to Jonah a second time. Jonah's got this new lease on life. He's grateful and thankful now for the Lord's salvation, and now he's at a place where he's much more willing to be used to the Lord and to listen to the Lord. All along, God is looking to instruct Jonah and just reveal his own heart to him. God could have easily just grabbed another prophet, right? Brought him in the mix and said, you know what, Jonah, forget it. I'm just going to go grab Hosea. He's kind of getting tired of his wife Gomer anyways. I'm sure he's ready for a change, right? No, God doesn't do that. He says, let's let's continue to work through this, Jonah. God's much more interested in the servant than he is in the service. Understand that. God's not just trying to use you and say, all right, I got a work to do. I don't really care about you, but I need you to do this work. And if you're not going to do it, I'm just going to go. God's more interested in the servant than he is in the service. And God is taking time here with Jonah and being patient with Jonah because God wants to get a hold of Jonah's heart here in these things. So here's Jonah graciously being recommissioned. Verse three, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is it. That's the word of the Lord now in this book. Eight words. That's it. That's the kind of the prophecy now being given. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now throughout the book of Jonah, we see the reference to Nineveh being a great city. This is not God's way of trying to lure Jonah to Nineveh. Say, you got to check this place out, man. It's so cool. It's a great city, man. Oh, one day maybe take your family there for a bit. this isn't God trying to lure Jonah in. It's explaining the magnitude and the size of the city and the strength of its people. Warren Rearsby says the, circum- the, the circumference of the city and its suburbs was 60 miles. And from the Lord's statement in Jonah 4.11, we could infer that there were probably over 600,000 people living there. One wall of the city had a circumference of eight miles And boasted 1,500 towers. The city was great in splendor, in influence, and in wealth. But Nineveh was also great in sin and wickedness. Showing great atrocities to their captives as we alluded to earlier. So here's Jonah making his way into the city. Thinking I'm sure about what this visit is going to look like. Is he going to escape with his life after declaring this word that God wants him to say? Hey, guys, 40 days, and that's it. Curtain call for you all. Lights out. That's it. I mean, Jonah's probably going, is, is this, is this going to be it for me? Not 40 days for them. Is it going to be four days for me, and then that's it for me? Lights out. I, and so he's going in, I'm sure, with fear and trembling. But understand something. The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God can't keep you and where the power of God can't use you. And so Jonah is going to see that at work here. And as he enters the city, again, the message is very simple, right? Forty days, and you guys are going to be overthrown. So notice this in verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily to God, Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Verse 9, Who can tell if God will turn and relent? And turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Hey, gang, this is unbelievable stuff that we're reading here. This right here before us is one of the greatest revivals that the world has ever seen. Right here. You take a guy like Noah who builds an ark for 100 years. And nobody is willing to turn, repent, or listen to the message. They mock him. Noah's faithful to the core, and yet Jonah comes with a slightly soured heart. He says one line, and the whole city is convicted and repents and turns to God. How does this stuff work? Here's the thing. Salvation is of the Lord. This is the Lord's work, you see. Nobody's looking at at trying to, you know, reproduce this now and go, oh, that's the key. I've been saying something a little bit different. Now I just got to say, 40 days, guys, and that's it. You're doomed. That's going to work. No, this is just a work of the Lord, and the results are left to God. Did Noah do anything wrong? No. Could Jonah have done things better? Yeah, probably in his, in his own attitude, but it didn't matter because salvation is of the Lord, and we can't forget that. Don't put pressure on yourself when it comes to witnessing to people and feel like you've got to bring it all together and make it work. And unless that person is on their knees crying out to Jesus at night, then you walk away feeling like a failure. That's not the case. We're just called to bring the message. Bring the message. Plant the seeds and, and the Lord takes care of the rest. That's all we're called to do. Trust the Lord in those things. But Jonah comes in a way where you think, now Jonah, I'd maybe change up the strategy a little bit. I'd maybe adjust things a little bit. Jonah comes in, does what God says, 40 days. And that's it, guys. And they all repent. It's amazing. This is something the Lord is doing here. So there's a major change taking place in the city. And they're doing so with just the hope, with just the hope that God is gonna them. Notice what they say. Who can tell, in verse nine, if God will turn and relent and turn away his fierce anger from us? Who knows? But let's do what we need to do to ensure that we're putting ourselves in the best potential position to receive that. Who knows? They don't even know. But there's a great change taking place. Then in verse 10, then God saw their works and they turned from their evil way, or that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So God sees the repentance. He sees throughout repentance is always gonna be accompanied with change, change of direction, change of attitude. That's why we need to encourage people, you know? Believe, yes, but you need to repent and believe. You need to turn from what you're doing. Have a change of direction, a change of attitude that says I'm no longer gonna go my way and do my stuff. I'm gonna go God's way and do his stuff. I'm going to follow him in faith. That's what John would say to the multitudes in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Repentance is going to be evidenced by action, by change. Now, does this mean that God was wrong to begin with in saying that Nineveh would be overthrown in 40 days? When he says, tell him the message. Is God kind of having a... A change of mind, like he was kind of wishy-washy, like, how does this work here? What's going on? Well, no, that's not the case. Because God's heart is always to bring about mercy and grace. God's heart is always to receive those that are willing to turn to him in faith and in repentance. God did not repent in that he had a change of mind or that he regretted a previous action. Rather, he relented in that he took a new course of action with the Ninevites, which was his desire all along and though this repentance was genuine we, we will see that it wasn't long lasting because 150 years later God will have to visit the iniquity of the Ninevites once more only this time they would receive his judgment for their wickedness from Nahum and we'll talk about that as the Ninevites become a central focus in the book of Nahum which we'll be seeing uh, soon here now Not tonight, don't worry. You're like, what what does he mean by soon? That's freaking me out. No, not tonight. It's okay. Now, if God was just intent on on saving Nineveh, well, the the book of Jonah would end right there. Like, that's a great story. This is a great account. Oh, man, wonderful. God saw their works. He turned from the evil way. This is great, man. Just wrap it up. This is super. But God's not just concerned with the people of Nineveh. God's still concerned with his servants as we get in the next chapter we see that there's definitely some work to be done in jonah yet still he needs some attitude adjustments made so here we see now in chapter four the displeasure of jonah look at verse one but it displeased jonah exceedingly and became angry remember when i talked about how jonah earlier like he had that kind of you know biased look at the ninevites and in fact a bit of a prejudice towards them He didn't want to go because he didn't want them to be saved. And so they all repent. They get saved. God turns back his wrath against them. And what happens now? Jonah's sitting here saying, Lord, I am really upset about this. I mean, this should have been cause for Jonah to be rejoicing. The very fact that the angels in heaven are rejoicing over one sinner that repents. Jonah should have been taking part in a great feast with them all. Living up, partying up, because this is a moment, an occasion to celebrate. But Joan is off, sulking. So it says in verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, "'Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord,' Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Oh, my goodness. Can you believe the heart and the attitude of this man, Jonah? Talk about drama. Jonah knew exactly the kind of mercy that God desires to portray. Understand that. And and how we need to realize that, too, that God is long-suffering. He's patient. He's Full of loving kindness. And we're not talking about New Testament God. We're talking about Old Testament God. A lot of people view Old Testament God as nothing but fire and wrath. And yet Jonah spells out for us I knew that you're gracious, you're merciful, you're slow to anger, you're abundant in loving kindness. You relent from doing harm. Jonah knew that full well. But Jonah had trouble. With God showing mercy to a bunch of Gentiles. That was something that Jonah couldn't stomach. He's like, hold on a second, Lord. Now, we're your people. You really, you can't do that to people outside of Israel. This doesn't work with our theology. This is what Jonah's thinking here. And that's why Jonah was fleeing. He didn't want God to even have the chance to spare them. And so the Lord says to him in verse four, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, are you really justified in this? Do you really have cause to be angry here? See, here's Jonah sulking. He's upset that he didn't get his way. He wanted the Ninevites to perish. He's extremely patriotic. He wants Israel to prevail to be the only nation that's gonna receive these blessings of God. He doesn't want the door left open for any kind of Gentile people, especially the Assyrians to possibly come and and have now favor with God or now for the Assyrians to even continue to live, possibly pose a threat to them. Jonah wants them gone. But Jonah failed to see That the overall plan of God, all along, was to raise up a people, not to save them only, but to raise up a people that would be His witnesses for the whole world. And for everybody to come in and receive the blessings of God. And that's why God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, that all the nations will be blessed through you. That's the underlying message that gets forgotten in the story of Jonah. Jonah. We all know about the rebellious prophet and the fish that makes for good storytelling there, but we often forget the fact that God wanted to show grace and mercy to an entire city and a Gentile city at that. See, this isn't something now that God does in the New Testament when they reject Jesus and they all go, okay, well now, yeah, it's, it's time. I mean, we tried with Israel, but they're just not getting it, so let's move. This has always been God's heart and plan, and he shows us this here. This is huge. His love and salvation extends outside the borders of Israel. It's meant to go to all mankind. This is wonderful stuff here. But Jonah's having a hard time with this. So he grabs his blanket, his soother, his toys, and he stomps off into the corner and sulks, and he's pouting, and he's just having a bit of a hissy fit now over what God's done. So look at verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city. He sat on the east side of the city, and there he made himself a shelter. He sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. <laughs> it's not a, not a very good strategic follow-up plan now to a great revival and outreach that's taken place. He sees the whole city repent and turn their lives over to God. But rather than come and greet them and share more with them, he pulls away selfishly. Again, like I said, Jonah should have been right there in their midst celebrating with them. Guys, this is awesome, man. I can't believe he... Oh, man, let me tell you about God. He is so good. Oh, man, I'm so glad you guys have turned to him because he just wants to bless you. This is so awesome, man. I mean, he should have been right in there, mixing up with them, having this celebratory party. But instead of rejoicing, Jonah's raging. He's complaining. So he goes away from Everyone. He takes himself out of the picture. It's a a real guarantee recipe for depression. If you want to be depressed, do what Jonah did. Sulk over your circumstances and remove yourself from others. In fact, there's a great 10 steps I have to overcoming depression. First of all, do something good for others, and then repeat step one nine times. Just start to give yourself away. Start to do stuff that puts your focus on others and not on you. Because Jonas, he withdraws. And what's he doing? He's just thinking about his own situation. I don't like this, this isn't fair, God. I wanted them to really perish. I don't want them to be saved. Why are you doing this, God? This doesn't work with what my will is here. And he's just focused on himself. Perhaps Jonas watching the city to see if their salvation is genuine. Maybe he thought that this wouldn't last. Nevertheless, Jonah is sulking, selfishly, seething, simmering, sadly soured over his circumstances here. So God begins to give him some object lessons now as to the absurdity of his feelings and his attitudes towards his situation. Look at verse 6. This is great. God just has a little bit of fun with him. This is, Oh, man, this is so fun. Now, the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned, the next day, God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's been in some near-death situations already, hasn't he? Now it's becoming too much for him. He's ready to die again. He's like, okay, The heat is beating down on me. I'm grumpy over the fact that these people are saved. He's just saying, Lord, take me out now. I don't want to live any longer. But the problem is, he's failing to see the work of the Lord in every circumstance. You see, God brought the plant that Jonah was thankful for, providing shade. Ah, but God also brought the worm that devoured the plant. And then the heat to beat down on him when there was no more shade. See, God brought the blessings, but he also brought the bummers. Do you see that? In everything, God is at work. Do you see what is going on there? Whatever is experiencing, whether there might be a high or a moment of reprieve, or then a moment of it all being taken from him, God's the one at work. God's the one that's doing it. Oftentimes, it's in the trials that God is able to reveal and deal with the things that we need work on the most. And God's much more concerned for our character than he is for our comforts. much more concerned for our character than he is for our comforts. And God's allowing Jonah to be tested here to really reveal what's going on in his own heart. Sometimes that's what trials do they? They kind of bring pressure and they squeeze us out, just like when you take a sponge. You look at a sponge and you go, "I don't know what's in this thing. What's going?" On? You squeeze that sponge out. Suddenly, you realize what's in there. Sometimes that's what trials do: is it kind of brings pressure, squeezes us, so that suddenly we begin to see what's spilling out of our hearts. Are we able to give thanks in everything because God's at work, or are we complaining and grumbling? 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's the will of God. Isn't it great when you hear very clearly what the will of God is? Because we oftentimes wrestle over what's God's will for my life? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in everything. You're gonna fulfill the will of God. It doesn't say we give thanks for everything. There's a lot of things I encountered that I am saying saying thank you, Lord, for this. I'm so glad that my car has a flat tire on this rainy night. This is super, thank you, Lord. No, we don't give thanks for it, but we can say, God, I'm giving thanks for you because flat tire could be a lot worse. Could have been hit by a semi or, or I could have rolled off the, uh, an embankment. It could have been a lot worse, God. I'm, I'm gonna give thanks because, God, you're alive, I'm alive, and I've got reason to praise you. So God said to Jonah in verse nine, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great seed in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? That's how the book ends, right there. God's giving Jonah a little object lesson here. He says, you did nothing for that plant. You didn't bring it into play here, but you're very happy for it. But then when it's gone, you, you complain. You didn't do anything about that. I'm the one that brought that plant. I'm the one that brought something that devoured the plant. He's saying, you don't have any right to be angry. And just as now you're complaining for this one thing that you didn't have any part with, you're upset about it. Do I not have right now to come and spare the Ninevites who are people that I've made in which there's many people there by which I can demonstrate my mercy and grace to? In the grand scope of things, do we really have a right to get angry when God does something we're not really on board with? Don't, don't, don't do a show of hands, but how many times have you been in a place where you've gotten angry at God because you don't like what's going on? Is it right for you to be angry? God is God. And he does what he will. And God is perfectly right in everything that he does. Maybe you've had moments when you feel really justified harboring some resentment toward another person, or maybe it's toward God. And he gently comes alongside and says, is that really necessary? Do you really need to hold on to that? Do you really need to feel that way? And we usually come around and say, yeah, you're right, God. I don't need to respond this way. I don't need to act that way. I don't need to feel the way that I'm feeling, Lord. See, Jonah lost his priority. He had greater concern for the plant than for the people. The plant was temporal, yet the people were eternal. Jonah had no part in creating the plant, yet yet was sorrowful in its demise. And yet God had created every one of the Ninevites and had every right to seek and save them. See, Jonah needed that character adjustment. And as much as he was bothered with God showing grace to Nineveh, it was the same grace that spared Jonah when he got out of line. Think about that. Jonah had no right being spared. He ran from God. God had every right to say, okay, Jonah, have it your way. See you later. But this story kind of encaptures the great grace chase of God pursuing Jonah, showing grace to him, and then even in a greater way, showing grace to a city that was full of wickedness and sparing them. We need to put ourselves on the same level as those around us. When things are going on that we don't like, when people are acting in a way that we don't like and we think, I'm angry at them and I I am right to feel angry to them. No, we need to go now. God, you love them. And, and you have nothing but grace for them. And guess what? You have every right to feel about me as i might be feeling about them. But you've shown grace to me. So, Lord, help me to walk in that love and grace to others. Help me to respond the way that you respond to me, Lord. Let me keep my priorities straight and say, God, it's all about you. We're all simply sinners saved by grace. And we can praise the Lord for that. And let us continue to show that grace. Let us continue to live without bias or prejudice or, or bitterness. Let us say, Lord, do your work and use me in it. And let me rejoice in what you're doing. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray.